This is Florian Hofmeister. You guys are listening to CinePod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? Welcome to L.A. Thanks. It's good to be here. And I brought some sunshine with me, so that, that that's wonderful. It's a nice you day did. today. <laughs> it was a very nice day today. Hey, Ilya, who do we have on the show today? Uh, we have Florian Hoffmeister, who has a little movie out right now called Tar, which a lot of people are talking about, about winning some Oscars, especially for Kate Blanchett. And uh, I saw it, and it is a powerful movie and definitely, definitely one to watch. So, uh, And that's Todd Fields, right? Like, he hasn't made a movie in years. That's true. And boy, did he make up for lost time. Excellent, excellent. No, I look forward to seeing it. Uh, I wasn't able to go see it yet, but I will definitely be seeing it this Oscar season, for I know it will be a huge contender. Yes, absolutely, without a doubt. So, Ben, what are we uh, what are we talking about today? Well, uh, you may have noticed if you're on some form of social media, like Facebook, like us oldsters, you might have noticed interesting AI artwork of your friends, or you yourself might have used a program called Lenza, uh, which I guess sucks up a bunch of pictures of you and then gives you a bunch of uh, really cool looking styles and, and looks for yourself. And uh, I, I, what I've from what I've seen, it like uh, makes you look like the best version of yourself, like uh, the the you you think you see when you look in the mirror, and your brain edits out all the stuff you don't like about the way you look. And uh, your crow's feet immediately disappear. Yeah. <laughs> no more bags under your eyes. When you say crow's feet, I, I hear Dan Neese's story about you have cock face. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh. oh, that's a wonderful story. And if you haven't heard the Dan Neese episode of the Cinematography Podcast, go back and listen to it. It's a fun one. And, and he, he tells also. a great uh, war story. So, Ben, you know, it's perfect that you bring up Lenza. There's an article actually on a website called Madame Noir, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. And the headline is AI went viral this weekend. Boy, did it ever. And here's what you should know about the trend. And they talk a lot about Lenza and some other stuff in here, including some of the celebrities who have been uploading. And there's a bunch of disclaimers with the Lenza app. I didn't actually use it, but I, I did download it. I did kind of look through it. And it says that, uh, hey, your data is safe. We're just transferring it between your device, your phone, and our cloud AI platform. And then mm. we send it back to you and we delete it. But their terms of service basically has this huge, long disclaimer saying that you uh, give up all rights to any image that you upload to them uh, in perpetuity uh, forever. So, and they can do whatever they want with it if you uh, if you use this app. So, supposedly, it's from a company called Prisma, who had another art app that was very popular back in 2016, which went viral. And uh, there's a lot of good, interesting information here in this the story on Madame Noir, including that some people online have been saying, well, this looks like stable diffusion uh, or appears to be stable diffusion, which is an AI art program online, open source sort of thing. And because people are paying money to the Lenza app, it appears that they might be making money off of what is a free open source thing. So there's some people who had some some real issues and problems with that and have taken to uh, complaining. Uh, wh where do you come down on this controversy, Ben? Where, what, what is your feeling about AI art and the, the future of art that is not made by people? At least not, oh, 
not ostensibly made by people. Well, God, that is, it's such a deep well of stuff to talk about, but I, I feel like this is a topic that could go any way in the future. AI art is definitely something that we're going to be dealing with. I got some traction a few weeks ago by uh, posting some pictures where I did H.R. Geiger's nativity scene. And I use uh, I use an, an, an AI art application called Midjourney, which is you know the the big ones are Stable Diffusion, Midjourney, and Dolly. Dolly was like the first really big which one, which we've talked about on the show before. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, look, they're amazing. I look at it as it's like a video. I'm not. I don't believe that I, in this regard, am an artist. I think that what I like is putting in really weird search terms. And seeing what weird stuff comes out the other end. And here's the thing. Like, some people are saying it's putting uh, artists out of, out of work. In certain instances, it might be somebody might reach for an AI instead of a real artist to do something very basic like ideation, uh, brainstorming kind of thing. Mm. You know, you punch in some ideas and see what it feeds you back. But by definition, it is derivative so for instance hr geiger's nativity scene you know it knows everything that it's able to scour every piece of art ever done by hr geiger and it's able to scour anything that you would search if you found if you did a an image search for a nativity scene and then it made just an awesome hr geiger like super disturbing nativity scene like a nativity scene out of the movie alien and And is the baby jesus an alien (laughs) Yes, uh, and and it was uh, it, it was. This, this, uh, this is wonderfully not blasphemous at all. This is this no, is so great. <laughs> but like, yeah, I went through a weird Klaus Kinski thing where I did like I also did a nativity scene that was all Klaus Kinski. Actually, I I, I posted did you do on, a Kanye West version too? I did not do a Kanye West version one. Although I, I have to admit, I did Kanye West playing every role in the Diary of Anne Frank. Of course he did. <laughs> and then I also did I also did the same thing with Fiddler on the Roof. See, it's fun, right? Like it's fun, but like it can't create Kanye West, it can't create Fiddler on the Roof, it can't create the Diary of Anne Frank. It has to have things to source those out of. So if you are calling yourself an artist using these tools and you want something that looks like HR Geiger, but HR Geiger didn't exist, you couldn't have it. Like, mm. you could spend your whole life trying to make that look, and it would be next to impossible to create the H.R. Geiger look. And you can do it with any artist. I mean, you can do... I did uh, one that was <laughs> Hieronymus Bosch painting of Elon Musk dancing on the grave of civility. And, uh, you know, it, it came up with something that kind of looked like a, kind of looked like an old Middle Ages Hieronymus Bosch painting. And that was kind of fun. If you didn't have that to source, you couldn't do it. It's not actually even a very good tool to do something like if you want something really specific and you feed those in there, you're going to have a very hard time getting stuff out of it. To me, it's more of like a game and it's a lot of fun, but it is here to stay. I mean, like, I, I just don't even know how you get rid of it. I think that people being afraid of it replacing real artists, like there's an AI for writing. And one of the writers of Rick and Morty had the AI create an original Rick and Morty outline. And I read it and it's like, yeah, that actually does read. It reads like a Rick and Morty synopsis. But I'm like, oh, come it's back to me. not a very good one. Yeah. Well, no, it, it's it's perfectly serviceable. Oh, you could write okay. that episode. But I'm like, uh, come back to me when the AI can write a funny joke. Because, mm. like, it's not going to do that. Um, well, and- I, I am not an expert in any of this AI art. But let me ask you. Let's say you want to do something that's sort of indie or obscure. Let's say I, I'm going to make this reference to some artist that isn't really on 
Google isn't really like an easy to find image search. Is it just going to fail completely? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean all the time. Okay, okay. So you you have to have something that's popular. That, you that and I, has, well, it doesn't have yeah. to be doesn't have to be like mainstream. So, like for instance, you and I know a great painter named Gabe Leonard, right? Mm. You know Gabe. Yes, of course. Gabe is a phenomenal painter. He makes a great living as a painter. He does exaggerated, surreal, beautiful. Like his work is just amazing. If you're listening to this, go check out. I believe it's Gabe Leonard Art or GabeLeonard.com. We can put a note, uh, a link in the show notes for Gabe. Anyway, I fed in. I forget what it was. It was like Klaus Kinski painted by Gabe Leonard, and it. Gave me back something that kind of looked like what a Gabe Leonard painting would look like. And I texted it to him only to find out that Gabe is a huge fan of doing this stuff. And he and I have been texting each other back disturbing stuff. The one that I did that went the most viral on Twitter was Muppet Mad Max. That's all I put in Muppet yeah. Mad Max. And I got back an image that looked like Mad, you know, like Mad Max Fury Road. But all the characters are Muppets and they look like Mad Max Muppets. And could that exist if Muppets didn't exist and Mad Max didn't exist? No. I couldn't have made that as an original thing. It's fundamentally derivative. The real question about AI art, though, is when you do something like, let's say I do something in the style of a living artist or, a, you know, recent artist. So I do something in the style of H.R. Geiger or Jasper Johns or somebody like that. It is making art in their style. Does somebody owe them money for aping their style that they took time and training and years to create a visual signature of their work? Do they own any part of it? And similarly, if I, you know, do, uh, you know, Jeff Goldblum shakes hands with sullen teenager and it gives me back an image, does Jeff Goldblum own a piece of that image? I don't think big picture it does, because like if I decided to paint something with paint or sculpt something with clay that looked like a pre-existing artist, people would call me out for being derivative, uh, rightfully so. But would that artist own any piece of it just because I was inspired by their work? I, I don't think so. Um, but I feel like maybe there are some legalities that need to be sorted out. As for the Lenza app, I feel like with a lot of apps, like there was that aging app. Is that the one that the same company mm. made? The one that made you look I don't old? Know if it, I don't know if it was the same company, but that aging app was famous for stealing people's information yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and selling it to, well, it was a Russian company, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, too, I think you're so right. I think, And it was right around the time of the election. And it was like, it made a very realistic looking old version of yourself like creepily so and I, uh, I I downloaded it and I kept downloading it and then deleting it but I downloaded it and like would take a picture and feed it into itself over and over again until it didn't look like a person anymore that was kind of fun you just make you look like a rotten peach with hair well, well um, let me make a request from you from you Ben if you could in your next uh, AI you know from Mad Max Fury Road if you could get uh Immortan Joe played by like Fodzy the bear that would be great I'd love to see that uh, I can give it a shot yeah I mean you know the the thing is the more specific you get the harder it is to do oh, it okay so, so so like it'll do it'll do something super super fucking weird and you'll be like what is that even supposed to like how did it get that it also gets hands really wrong Mm, it can't um, do hands. I've, I've, I've but, heard but this. Like, yeah. But I'll, I'll give you an example, though, of like a, a thing. So there's a movie that I was putting together a pitch deck for, and part of it involves a zombie being treated by a healthy human doctor. Mm. I if as soon as I put the word zombie in there, it tr it tried to make everyone into a zombie, and mm. I could I could go out of my way to be like healthy human non-zombie doctor treats zombie and it would still make the doctor into a zombie and uh, you know it's so like what you you're saying not quite there yet as a lookbook tool for you know uh trying to set the mood of your your pitch 
I mean, depending on what you're doing, uh, you might be able to get lucky. But what you can do, which is interesting, is you could write concept art of whatever it is, and it'll make it look like a concept art painting. And, you know, yeah. Or you could just say oil painting or mixed media, and it like totally copies that. And uh, it's pretty amazing. And again, I feel like it's it's here forever. But for people who are like, uh, somebody was on, on a thread on Twitter was like, it's going to replace actors. I'm like, you know, the a problem with... Yeah, I mean, like, long so way. long way away, because, like, firstly, there's we like, three or four uncanny valleys you'll have to cross for, well, before that happens. But also, we like our actors. Like, That's I was, right. I was watching uh, uh, Glass Onion, and mm. it's like, what a great cast. And it's like, I love to watch Janelle Monet, for instance. Like, she's she's just so watchable and such an engaging actor you don't on want screen. AI Janelle Monet? No, who gives a shit about <laughs> AI anyone? Like, I feel like you, you use AI Janelle Monet when Janelle Monet's character has to fall off a building and you need you need the proper physics of the body and you don't want to hire a stunt person, but you want it to look good. That's a visual effect. That's not an actor with real emotions that as a human being, I am trained to discern when I see them in a movie or TV show with a voice that is almost impossible to synthesize. But what if Janelle Monet wants to stay home <laughs> and wants to get paid? Because there's there's people talking about that too. People have talked about like, you know, Morgan Freeman can already do like a million voiceovers. His voice has been sampled so many times. The mm -hmm. computer can create Morgan Freeman's voiceover for anything. They can't because of legal issues right now. But if Morgan Freeman just decided, you know what? I'm fine with my voice being the voice of all of these brands, all of these things. Give me the money and I get to stay home and do nothing. They say that that might happen at some point. I mean, they, I mean, someone. they already have AI things that can copy a voice. And I feel like some of that stuff will be great for like an app like Waze. Waze would do this where they would have like Arnold Schwarzenegger come in and record all your directions. <laughs> or your and, mom. Yeah. <laughs> Honey, you missed the turn. Go back. <laughs> But but so like, you know, you could have Morgan Freeman and the problem with those was like Arnold Schwarzenegger would be like up here, take a left. But you couldn't have him say like turn left on Lancashire. Mm -hmm. um, but if you had if you had an AI library of somebody like Morgan Freeman, he could say whatever you wanted him to say. Of course, Morgan Freeman would need to license that to you. You get your ass sued off rightfully so. But I feel like, you know, in terms of being able to make like we can make a very realistic looking AI person. We can sort of make a move a little bit. The technology is moving fast, but I feel like the uncanny valleyness of it is not going away anytime soon. Maybe I'll, I, I could live to eat these words, but I think AI art is going to be used for drafts. In the same way that interns are currently used. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe they'll replace. <laughs> interns are going to be replaced. But when painters complain about it, and I feel like anyone has a right to complain about you know anything they want to complain about, it's fine. But when painters complain about it, saying like, "Oh, they're stealing our livelihood," you know, like I uh, I had it make a Rubik's cube out of cheese, right? Like that wasn't going to be someone's job. I wasn't going to hire someone to paint a Rubik's cube out of cheese in oil painting. That was never going to happen. So that's not a lost job. Maybe that's a bit of a straw man argument that I'm making there. But I will say that like. Portrait painters complained when photography showed up on the scene because these people were like training to be Rembrandt like in their, uh, you know, or Vermeer like in their reproduction of of what we look like. And then you could come by with a machine and go click. So now we can come by with a machine and say, paint me a statue of Billy Bob Thornton out of wasp larvae and it'll do it. And that's cool. But would, would a painter have been doing that? I Like I said, if you are original in your work, then you're ahead of the AI because the AI can only look 
It's only backwards facing. It's never, it can't say, oh, this is where painting is going. And if you've read your, uh, your inside media, you know, th- that book that we all were forced to read in film school. I, I remember specifically there was a thing about how like when a new art form comes, when a new method comes along or a new technology comes along, it liberates the previous one to be art. And photography and painting were one of the examples, but also, you know, video and film. They liberate the previous to be more of an artistic expression. And so, you know, my guess, maybe I'm being Pollyanna about it and, you know, whistling uh, past the graveyard or fiddling while Rome burns, or I could switch those around and whistle while Rome burns. You know, but but I feel like what it's going to do is it's going to force painters to do more innovative, interesting stuff, because anything that's super banal will be handleable by desktop software soon enough. I I think that's absolutely true in the same way that like analog video has now been emulated by so many people's cell phones, including, you know, Thomas Worth's VHS cam. I mean, there's the original of those, but it's like, yeah, I think Pixel Vision's got to be out there too by now. So all those previous formats. I I can can only hope. I love Pixel Vision. (laughs) Anyway. Uh, Anyway. Well, hey, let's get to the interview with Florian Hoffmeister. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm joined now by Florian Hoffmeister, cinematographer of the new movie Tar, directed by Todd Field. Uh, Welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks, Ilya, for having me. I'm very excited to be sharing this evening conversation with you. Yes, it's evening where you are right now. Where where are you in the world? I am uh, broadcasting out of Iceland. I'm in Reykjavik, Iceland, and uh, I'm just on the second week of shooting a new installment of um, True Detective. Oh, fantastic. I, I love that show. It's got quite a following. And uh, were you a fan of the show before you uh, came on board? Yes. Yeah, I had only seen the first season, which was, of course, quite seminal when it came out. But the interesting bit is they are just so different. You know, it's like an anthology. So we started our stuff here from scratch. Well, you also have a new movie out right now called Tar, stars Kate Blanchett. And as I mentioned, uh, directed by Todd Field. For our listeners out there who don't know anything about it, how, how would you describe the movie? Oh, God. You're starting with the hardest question. You know, it is the hardest question. And I was actually thinking it's a cop out because I don't want to do it and I don't want to give anything away. I actually I, I watched it last night and I had the very lucky situation of never having seen a trailer, never knowing anything about it, didn't even know the running time. I went in completely blind. And Wow. Wow, what a movie. Okay, now, if you didn't want to describe the movie, what sort of genre would you say this fits into, and how would you convince someone that they want to see it? Oh, God, you just got to go and see it. You know, I mean, I am literally not speaking from the place of my own contribution to it. Even now, when I see it, you know, I've seen it multiple times throughout the uh, color grading. I've seen it finished now, I think, three times. Uh, even I get lost in it, you know, because it's it has such a unique form of storytelling, just the way it starts. Uh, you know, it starts with the main uh, character, Lydia Tarr, who is a conductor of a famous German orchestra and the most famous and most successful female conductor of her time. And it starts with this interview sequence and Adam Gopnik from uh, The New Yorker is actually appearing for real. And, and you just listen to that conversation and within three minutes i'm actually thinking this is for real i'm actually there i'm i'm watching the real person being interviewed by adam gopnik but i completely lose myself even now so it's a hard one (laughs) to answer your question i mean you just got to see yourself you know 
it doesn't feel like people make movies like this anymore. It almost feels to me like a throwback out of something like French New Wave. It, it's very interesting staccato bit of storytelling that feels at once real and at once almost like it's being reduced to vignettes. And I don't really know how, how one describes too much of this movie. I feel like to do so is almost reductive and doesn't give you the impact of when the real crux of the narrative starts to unfold. Do you feel like that's fair or would you disagree? And I think like one of the things, you know, what resonated with me when you said it, it feels like it's a bit out of time or comes from a, it speaks from a different time. What resonates with me when you said that was, you know, I feel like really good cinema is a cinema of reflection like not reflecting about itself, but sure. having, allowing us to reflect into it. You know, if I think of the, some of the great cinema that really inspired me when I was young, it was often films that left room for my own thinking, my own perception that could even change when I watched them for a second time. Mm. And I think the film has that kind of a shape that it allows you to see yourself and actually to see what we think about the time we're living in. And I think that makes it at the same time timeless, but very contemporary. It is, it is definitely a contemporary tale, but I was struck with watching it, too, that just how the omission of certain little bits of information and character development could absolutely completely change your interpretation of everything that takes place after that. It's like the vital bits of information get more obvious, I feel like, as, as the movie goes on. And then, like, you really get an interesting picture of relationships and I dare say maybe one of the most compelling portraits of narcissism I've ever seen. Do you, do you think that's also fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's a, you know, a great achievement that, you know, you could spend three hours in a room with other people watching this and allowing yourself to slowly grow into it and maybe even have a completely different opinion Mm. After, you know, ideally you leave the movie theater and you spend the next four hours debating. And I really, these statements is purely my own experience as an audience member. I would say exactly the same, uh, even if I hadn't worked on the film. Well, tell me how, how you did come to the film. How did you get connected with uh, the production, with Todd? How, how did this come together? The phone rang. <laughs> <laughs> the phone rang and said, the phone hey. rang. a voice was on I the other had, side. I had it in my hand. <laughs> well, this, uh, seriously, it is like that. You know, he, he got in touch. It's, it's an almost ironic story. When I Just shortly after I'd come out of film school, two or three years later, I was stuck in a little French village. Mm. And it just had one movie theater. And at the time it was playing, because it was France, it was playing Star Wars and mm -hmm. Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> <laughs> the smaller Screen. projection was Eyes Wide Shut, the bigger one was Star Wars. And it was in, you know, with French subtitles. I mean, this was a village of, say, Literally 150. I mean, it's tiny. It's like France. Even every little village has a cinema. I stayed there for, I think, four weeks. And it was the only film to see. And I watched it literally 20 times. And oh, I wow. totally love it. And then a couple of years later, In the Bedroom came out. And I thought it not only spoke to me as an audience member, but I thought it was also, it has had this energy. You know, it really felt like that's independent cinema worth fighting for. You know, I would have never thought that 20 years later, I get a chance to work with him. So when Todd called, you know, he could have offered me the phone directory of New York and I would have photographed it. You know, seriously, I was just totally up for it. So we spoke on the phone. He sent me the script and then we spoke again. And I think it was in April 
And then in July, uh, we started pre-production. So it was a very quick, quick process. I actually worked with Todd Field back in 1993. He will never remember me. It was during the production of a movie called Farmer and Chase, which he was one of the one of the leads, one of the stars. It was my very first production assistant gig ever. Wow. So so uh, so yes, I've I've followed his career with interest, of course, through the years, and uh, it's quite the trajectory. He's had really interesting work, and I'm always delighted to see when he has a new movie come out. And I got to play an extra. I got to, a featured close up extra in the movie with with Todd Field. So I can say I'd, I was in a movie with Todd Field, which is really funny. But no, the reality is I was a, a production assistant and an extra, but it is sort of what gave me the bug to even work in this this industry in any capacity. And I got to say that he is one of the most interesting voices out there today. He takes chances and goes for it. And I think that this is an, an exact example. And holy crap, if you uh, judge quality of your director by the performances you get from your actors, like like if, if nothing else, I mean, uh, Kate Blanchett's performance is astounding. So you've got this, you know, these fantastic people to photograph and you have a, v- a variety of settings. Can you talk a little bit about the look that you chose for like the work that's happening in, in Berlin and in the concert hall and in her apartment where she wakes up in the middle of the night? What strikes you first? Is it the composition? Is it the lighting? Does one inform the other? Is it a, a marriage of the two? How do you visualize and then start to make it real? Is it starting with the composition? Is it starting with lighting? Do they both inform each other? How does that work? Well, I think they, you know, in the end, they both inform each other. But of course, one of the things I wanted to give to any director I work with or any project is the freedom of movement. So a lot of these initial thoughts of how one could shape the light incorporate also the responsibility. I feel that people shouldn't be too restricted by it. So, you know, you you think of lighting a space quite quickly. Mm. And then once the shot in itself starts to evolve within the given space, then you would shape this further. And again, you know, and I think because Todd is very precise and he's got a tremendous visual sensitivity. So once you set up the shot, then you also know that it won't change. And then you can really tweak it and, and get it to its utmost perfection. And also another privilege that I felt exposed to was that you know Kate is not only a very amazing emotional actress she also very much knows the filmmaking process and she also knows the technicalities of it and she accepts it as part of her craft so you're not in an environment where suddenly you're working with somebody who is able to do things again is able to accommodate some of their technicalities so I would say the light uh, is kind of shaped almost independently once the shot is up it's then being designed to the shot yeah. Uh, and then how does camera motion then fit into that? Because there's quite a bit of static camera through many of the scenes, but then there are moments of flourishes uh, of movement and uh, dynamic movement. And how does camera movement figure into your storytelling to emphasize the, the story or the subtext or whatever's going on? How do you choose to utilize camera movement? Entar, uh, yes. Entar, yeah. that's of course, that was a, a big topic. And Todd and I spoke at length about it, and he was very adamant that, um, for example, the orchestra scenes, because we shot with the real orchestra. And once you go in the room um, and you hear 80 people do the first bar of whatever, you know, the, the heart of the cinematographer jumps forward and you want to just make the camera fly. Uh, and Todd was very adamant never to move the camera mm. in the rehearsal space, for example, because he said that the rehearsals should always feel like work. 
you know, and never we should should we glorify or uh, romanticize, you know, the the musicality of it. So and we were very, very, very aware of uh, of movement. And sometimes you would set up simple shots where you think, oh, you know, we might move in a little bit on her, and you start, and the movement throughout the rehearsal process would get smaller and smaller. And in the end, I would just say we would just look at each other and say, no, listen, let's just do it still, because it is it, you know, it. Uh, it adds a form of narrative at times. And we spoke a lot about restraint and letting things go and not being in the way of the film, you know, and I've got this phrase that not to put a head on a head. Mm -hmm. And and he has this phrase, don't gild the lily, you know, because like it is in our nature to, you know, make things better or more beautiful. Mm -hmm. And sometimes and very often, I think, or I'm more aware of it now after having shot, you know, how often is it just a, a reflex it's a form of automated response to a given you know situation and it was really interesting to come from a place of no don't move a lot of it was from no you know and we felt less is more and then more less is even more more you know (laughs) so um and it was a very liberating in that sense because even though you have these restraints the entire time when you then hit it it's a feeling of complete liberation because when you finally figured out how the scene will transport itself after you've said no to many of these options that you normally have, it's a real relief, you know. Well, well you didn't make Tokyo Story. This is not an Ozu movie. It's not. It's not. Uh, you know, you're you're not locked off and, and never moving at all. But I, you know, I really want to talk about sort of a, a reoccurring story element, a sequence which is Lydia Tars wakes up in the middle of the night several times and sort of has these these moments. She's wakened from dreams. We even get to see one of her dreams once, which is wonderful and fascinating. But the moments when she wakes up, when she's wakened awakened from slumber, has this silhouette. Well, I mean, the, the the look is a little bit different each time, but can you talk about just these little sequences, these little sequences where she's woken up in the middle of the night? Uh, for me, it's like visually, it's some of my most favorite parts of that movie. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, to me, it was, uh, I've been always fascinated of that light that you cannot see, you know, that when you wake up at night. And I thought it was actually, I think it's even says it in the script, there were very clear uh, descriptions of it being, you know, this time of night when you when you don't see but you feel you see. And the location itself had these gray walls, you know, they were all concrete. Mm. And it was just a beautifully shaped space. Automatically, you would go from like a a slightly lit figure to a complete silhouette because there was some color on the wall. And that was really a dream to shoot. And actually, it was technically a difficult place to achieve that because the location itself was a form of penthouse. Mm. And we couldn't really... We had to rig these tubes uh, because we couldn't access the place with like normally what you would do with cherry pickers or cranes. So we had to rig these outreach posts and and place these tube lights up in the air. And uh, so it was on, in one hand, on one hand, very, very complicated. But when it all was on and you could walk through the apartment and shoot literally 360 at night, just in this light, you know, that was beautiful, very rewarding. Let's talk a little bit about you, Florian. Tell me how you got started in this. How did you uh, first get the bug? When did you know that this was going to be uh, your career? Oh, <laughs> what day of the week is today? <laughs> wow. oh, so it was recently. <laughs> no, you you've been doing this. You've been doing this for, for quite a while, and you first came to my attention when you did the Prisoner series, the remake of the Prisoner, oh, wow. which which I 
absolutely loved and i was like who is this guy and like yeah that was my first introduction into you and i i i really really enjoyed that so so yeah that was probably what 10 years ago now 13 15 years yeah Yeah, it was was a while ago man thanks a lot Mensch Ilya that's really nice of you to say because I was really proud of it at the time it never really gained that much traction um I think it's one of the great misunderstandings of a remake but we had some really cutting edge stuff in there you know and absolutely um, i loved it it was like i couldn't get enough i i enjoyed it more than the original some people might find that sacrilege but oh my goodness did i really enjoy that <laughs> how i got started so i i just uh, i was always interested in film and theater i went to film school before i actually went to film school i grew up in a tiny town in former west germany called braunschweig and uh, that was shortly after the reunification so mm-hmm. Berlin wasn't a production, a real production base. Most of the West German production was taking place uh, down in Munich, actually. So uh, I went there nevertheless because it's you know that was the place where you wanted to be. And I remember getting a company directory of all the film companies and production companies, and those are tiny at this point. Mm. Um, and I I looked for one that was basically had the most expensive street address because I thought if if they can afford that street address, they might afford some, you know, extra stuff. And it was one of those coincidences. I called and I said, I'm looking for an internship. And the guy had probably a stack of applications 50 centimeters high. And he said, oh, before I look through them, I take the guy on the phone. And then I, I joined the production as an intern in the lighting department. And I still remember it was a tiny production. But then we shot this intimate little scene and it must have been the third week and somebody gave me the clapperboard and said, you do it because I was just sitting so close, you know, mm. by that time I had learned how a clapper was, was called and you, I did it and I sat down and afterwards the director asked me, so how, how long have you been doing this? And I said, well, it's literally my first film. And he just gave me this look. And I knew at that point, okay, I have been infected. You know, I've, mm-hmm. I, I already have it in me. It's already done. I can't go back now. You know, and then I applied to film school. And then a couple of years after film school, I just happened to come across a British director called Antonia Bird. Mm-hmm. She has died, unfortunately, a few years back. She was mm-hmm. actually uh, one of the biggest female directors in the UK. Uh, she also went to Hollywood. She did a couple of really interesting films. One is called Ravenous. And she had just returned from Hollywood back to the UK. And she did this uh, film for Channel 4 and HBO called The Hamburg Cell which was about the attacks of uh, 9-11. And it was told from the perspective of the group of people, uh, you know, the terrorists and the formation of the group, which in essence happened in Germany because that's where they were radicalized. And she had a British DOP, but that he didn't, wasn't available. So the German service production put together a roster. I was on it and I interviewed and she gave me the job and it was a, a fantastic piece. I think I'm very proud of it today, till today. And then... A couple of years later, she called me to come to Britain. And then, you know, it just went off from there because she was a very exposed director in the UK. It sounds like she really gave you your your first real big break, which is fantastic. And it, on a project of note like that, too, which is which is wonderful. So now that I mean, look, this is, there's a lot of time has passed between your early work and, and today. What do you think is your uh, do you think you have a signature? Do you think that there is a, a certain type of thing that you try to interject into all of your, your projects? Does each project stand alone? How would you describe your style? 
Oh, I really don't have one, I think. I mean, I probably do. I don't know. It's so hard for me. I mean, I'm, uh, I think, you know, if you get a chance to make a film that gets people thinking, you know, that's a great gift. And if I get a chance to be part of it, that's fantastic. I enjoy that as a cinematographer, there's different genres I can play with, you know, um, Sometimes, ideally, it might be two and they might be a crossover. But, you know, staying intimate and personal with the subject matter, even if it's a comedy, for example. I don't have a, I don't think I have a handwriting. Do you think I have a handwriting? No, which is why I bring this up. So, you know, I've seen Mordecai. I've seen some of Pachinko. Of course, I saw The Prisoner. And these are all very, very different looks and very and all very successful. But but no, I was I was curious if you yourself thought that that maybe there was something about maybe night exteriors or something that you thought was kind of like a, a way that you that you approached your work. But but I don't know. Well, I, was... I mean, I, I, you know, I, I do enjoy But if I were to say one thing, I really do enjoy lighting and I do enjoy finding the right tone for each film. You know, and I enjoy changing it as well. Uh, the, the the comedy work that I have done is, of course, those are films that are oftentimes you know disregarded for they're not necessarily you know regarded cinematic interesting work, which I would dispute. You know, I I personally find Tutsi, yeah, that's a beautifully photographed film. You know, and and if you think, I mean, I I took those films because. I had small children at the time, and I, um, I mean, they're bigger now, but they were small then. And I just thought, you know, comedy is like almost the other side. The, it's the same coin, but the other side of uh, thriller, because nothing is more important in comedy than timing. And nothing fails more in comedy if you miss that timing, it's not funny. And the lighting oftentimes in those things is actually quite interesting because it will cater to the subgenre that every comedy has. So if you do something that is set in the world of espionage, you have to, you know, you really have to take that almost seriously. Mm -hmm. You can't light for comedy, I think, because you can't light fun. You know, <laughs> at the same time, though, the performance has to be visible at certain points. So there's a, you have to shape it that it's a believable subgenre. And at the same time, you need to give the performer the presence especially when it comes to physical comedy. So those are all things that, you know, I found fascinating and intriguing. And that's why I chose, you know, to do those things at the time. Is I also am always interested, sorry to say, no, no. in a film that doesn't have a weapon in it. It's also interesting. Violence is, you know, such oftentimes such an entertaining element of filmmaking. And I've also set in films, films that I tremendously enjoy, but I think sometimes it's worth stepping back and asking yourself, you know, why is it? And it doesn't really have to be. I think that's very astute. And it's true. When you see gratuitous violence, when you see the violence that doesn't seem to have any motivation or real impact for the story, you always kind of wonder, it's like, was that really necessary? What was that? Did that actually make this a better project? And now it's one thing if you're seeing an action film where violence is kind of the entire point of the thing. But I, but you're right. It's comical when violence is inserted needlessly because I think you lose your impact. It's like swearing. If you swear all the time, it has no impact. Just like if there's a the, if there's an act of violence and there's a little bit of violence in tar and those scenes really that you know it really stands out because it's so different from the rest of the movie giving nothing away but the moments that you know where you have I don't want to give anything away but but Lydia, you know, basically deciding to 
go after someone, it's so impactful. It really underscores everything else you've seen up until that point, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. So. And, you know, I think to come back to the film again, it's also because there's this, you know, when we shot it, every little detail was of significance. Mm. But I, to I an extent, that. you know, and, and I mean, it's like, it's hard to bring that across because, you know, everybody filmmaker would say that, you know, everybody's serious about his work. But it, it is hard to to describe the atmosphere we had off, uh, on set because uh, you know it starts first and foremost with Todd, who is completely dedicated to it. I mean, you know, he burns himself, and uh, then you have Kate who's uh, burning herself as well, and then suddenly it almost is like waves of dedication that you know kind of emit from these people and catch everybody else around it. So you catch yourself trying to get the perfect prop you know, find the right angle to photograph the perfect prop, that the, the amount of research that had been gone through to actually to find the, all the ingredients, the score, you know, the the, the shirt uh, he wears. I mean, that it, it was, it went on and on and on and on. And that infects and, and influences everything. And when you finally get to the moment to capturing it, even if it's only one shot, I sometimes feel, you know, people go and say, well, how many shots do you do? And the more you do, the more exhausted you are. In this atmosphere of precision even doing one will drive you mad you know so it is this uh and that that was something that was very very a very special atmosphere I agree. And I feel like there's plenty of movies that could be accidentally great, that maybe all the, the elements came together and it worked and hooray, everything happened. There is nothing that feels like an accident about this. It feels exactly as precise and intentional. And in the way that I would say other contemporaries, like maybe maybe David Fincher makes movies where you feel like every single detail is very, very. And, and you know that every detail is very important because that's who David Fincher is and that's how it is. There's a level of precision in this where as the audience member you feel like everything is so intentional. Every moment in this this is, is so intentional. It's not that it was great because it got made great in the edit. It feels like it was great from the get-go because of all the work and all the people who put in to make the best thing that they could and that getting a compromise was never an option. It was only going to be the vision. So does that resonate at all with you? Does that sound like... Yeah, absolutely. Like, I yeah. think that could have been the, the crew shirt. Compromise is not an option. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, this, you should turn this into merchandise, man, for the for the for the podcast. Compromise is not an option. <laughs> mm. I, I was actually thinking about getting shirts that say "Pan Up" because you know that's the camera joke that only you know camera people right? <laughs> pan up. You know, there's, there's no there's no pan up. There's, but you know, regardless. But but I hey, I appreciate that. Maybe, maybe we'll come up with a T-shirt. You know, here in the near future. Anyway, uh, Florian, I I know we're just about out of time, but where can people find you online if you exist online do you do any of the social media things do you post still photos anywhere are you are are you a, a social media person i've got an instagram account that i there's probably 15 little postings in there so it's not worth going to do you have a website i've got a website which is basically yeah i'd rather people should go see watch tar and then uh go into the cinema and enjoy that all right. Well, we will put it in the show notes at camnoir.com. So if you're listening to the sound of my voice and you want to find Florian's website, go to Cam Noir and we will put a link to it there where you can see some of his other stuff online or go watch Tar. Yeah, go watch Tar. See it in the theater. That's, that's the place to see it. 
I really enjoyed it. I think a lot of people will enjoy it. And congratulations again. I think that heading into award season, this is really well timed. I think that a lot of people are going to check this out. And your star is going to be a little shinier because of that. Because I think it's really a great, a great testament to yourself, too, because it, the movie looks fantastic. It really looks great. Florian Hoffmeister, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you very much, man. It's been a pleasure. All right, that was Florian Hoffmeister. Uh, hey, thanks so much again for being on the show, and uh, I can't wait to talk to you again at some point in the future. And I cannot wait to see Tar. And now, short ends. Hey, uh, Ben, it is our famed short end time. What is your obsession this week? What are you all about? Well, I've been uh, kind of dicking around with this software that I got on a Black Friday sale, but I'd been hearing about it for a long time, and that's Topaz Video AI. Oh, okay. Topaz Video AI is basically for upscaling footage, and you can bring in stuff that was shot in HD, and it uses AI to turn it into 4K, and you can bring in stuff that was shot in SD, and and it'll you can't take SD footage currently and make it 4k although i guess you could make it hd and then make the hd 4k if you wanted and i've been throwing some of my older projects some of my standard def projects like one that you know pretty well uh conversations a short film that i did uh in 2003 wow uh yes that years ago 20 it'll be 20 years ago in in uh, july wow and um starring uh, curtis armstrong it's the first time I ever worked with like a uh, name talent that I was, you know, like I was a little uh, someone whose whose stardom intimidated me. Although Curtis is a he's he's an awesome dude. Yeah. And so I brought it in and it like lets you it has a bunch of different modes that you can kind of play with. It has like funky names for each one. And it's very, very customizable. It can also do stuff that I hate, like uh, turn your stuff into 60 frame per second. Like, you fuck that but um i mean i guess there's you know there's maybe a reason to do it but uh, anyway it's just very interesting in that it like knows what skin tones look like it knows you know it's using ai very interestingly to enhance and improve the quality of your stuff and it's a little pricey i don't know if you can still get the black friday deal right now but i feel like as an investment in one's back catalog and one's reel it's not a bad thing especially like it'll it will deinterlace and fix interlaced artifacts in your footage like it's really uh it's really quite smart uh it'll add grain it'll add noise it does stuff very intelligently or in my case i kind of don't want to add grain that wasn't there but but if that's the thing you like it's there and i definitely think it's worth uh, checking out for a lot of people if especially if you have a lot of footage that you shot you know on an older camera or uh, sd uh, that's interesting so so far worth it worth worth the investment i mean again i'm just i'm really just starting to dick around with it a little bit uh, but so far it's li- like i'm i'm probably going to replace some of my vi- my older videos on vimeo with like if they were standard def with at least hd versions i feel like that's at least kind of the where everything should be at best and also i might take uh, there was a short film that i shot on 35 millimeter a long time ago like in 1999 and we retransferred it to hd i don't know six or seven years ago i might take the hd version of that and blow that up to 4k and see how it looks because mm. it was because we did an h a pristine hd transfer off of a print that I think it only screened once and there weren't there wasn't too much dust or anything on it. It looked really good. 
and uh, like I wonder if I took that up to 4K, what it would look like. Well, keep me posted. I'm I'm very interested. I remember yeah. seeing in the old days uh, Super 8 blown up to 16, and I know someone who won a film festival with the the 16 millimeter film, and someone came up to them afterwards and said, "Hey, we really want to blow this up to 35," and they said, "Well, you know, we didn't disclose this when we submitted it, but it was originated on Super 8, and so it, you Super 8 to, to 35 might be a, a little extreme." And they they all kind of went, "Oh, okay, maybe we'll just." keep it as it is on, on 16. Tell that to Robert Richardson, man. Yeah. <laughs> He's put tons of Super 8 in his movies. Quite, quite, anyway. quite a bit. Uh, so, Ilya, what is your short end today? Uh, well, my short end is actually a podcast. Uh, Whoa. Yeah, I know. Wait, that's my, that's my bit. <laughs> that is your bit. Uh, it turns out The Hollywood Reporter has a podcast called It Happened in Hollywood. And if you go and actually look at this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, you'll see some pretty interesting guests on the show, including uh, you know Randall Kleiser of Greece and uh, Michael uh, Lehman of Heathers, a bunch of people out there. Griffin Dunn, who was in After Hours, a Scorsese film. They, they have some interesting guests, and they kind of do these breakdowns and talk about uh, very specific projects. And one from a couple of weeks ago, which I missed, which uh, I'm interested to go and listen to, is a guy named Edward Packard. Uh, he is the creator of Choose Your Own Adventure. I don't know if you remember Choose Your Own Adventure, but uh, I do. But I, I, I had a bunch of those books when I was growing up. I did too. I had a bookcase full, and they were actually something that were kind of fun to reread because uh, if if you are generationally deprived and have never experienced a Choose Your Own Adventure, you did not read the book linearly. You started on one one page, and depending on what choices you made, you might go to a different part of the book, and it was purposely sort of jumbled up so that. Every read, if you so chose, could be different, and you could have different endings and different sorts of things. You know, Choose Your Own Adventure books have inspired all kinds of filmmakers out there, including like Ryan Johnson. And now, uh, yeah, it's sort of had a little bit of a resurgence. I saw, speaking of that AI art, didn't you just do some AI Choose Your Own Adventure inspired art recently? <laughs> yes, I did. Well, I was I, the thing about dicking around with AI art, in my opinion, is like finding an aesthetic that you never thought of as an aesthetic. And I remembered that the Choose Your Own Adventure books had a very distinctive style in their cover art. Oh, always. So I, very so I 70s. Cut, <laughs> I came up and, and which, I mean, like I was reading them in the 80s. I thought that they were more of an 80s phenomenon. For sure. So you could just make up a title of an Choose Your Own Adventure book and tell it to make it in the style of a Choose Your Own Adventure book f- cover art from 1985. And uh, so, you know, I, I was uh, doing uh, honestly horrible things like the mustachioed stranger wants me to get in his van that, that's as an, the title. That's a, a, a absolutely <laughs> uh, spot on modern dark representation of a lot of Choose Your Own Adventure books. And, and, you know, the first three actually came out between 79 and 81. And that includes The Cave of Time. Your nice. code name is Jonah. And who killed Harlow Thromby? So, <laughs> so you know, uh, that's just a little uh, example. So, you know, the, the stranger's van could totally be uh, anyway. But what? But as a tween at that time, I totally thought about Choose Your Own Adventures often and would try to see what would happen. And it's a wonderful example of uh, a non-traditional form of storytelling that uh, is just a spin on something that that, you know, it's, it's not necessarily great high art, but you could make the claim that even like those current sort of Netflix sort of choose your own adventure movies are all inspired from the choose your own adventure books. If you know what I'm, what I'm talking about. Was For it sure. Bandersnatch? Was that one, was that one of yeah, those? Yeah, yeah. 
Bandersnatch. So anyway, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this podcast. I haven't gotten to, to, to hear it yet. It's it's in the queue. We'll put a link in the show notes over at camnoir.com if you'd like to uh, read the article and or uh, check out the podcast. Excellent. So, Ben, I think that just about does it for our show today. Let's thank some people. Who do we have to thank? Let's start by thanking Alana Cody. She's got some great interviews for us coming up. We've already recorded a couple of them. We have a few of them uh, still yet to go. And I I don't want to tease anyone, but an interview with someone who we've never spoken to before, who, like, when we started this podcast, we were like, maybe we can get this person on there one day. Well, that day is actually i believe this saturday uh, we'll actually be talking to this cinematographer and it's really exciting too we're going to have someone who has been on the show before who we haven't spoken to since the very very beginning of this whole podcast is coming back to tell us all about their incredible uh, life and career uh, that that's progressed since then so let's thank Alana Cody. Let's thank Ben Katz. We didn't make Ben's job very easy tonight by uh, rambling and talking too much. Uh, but Ben edits this show and does just a phenomenal job, and he's an invaluable part of the team here. And uh, lastly, we should thank, as always, Kay's Alatrachi. Uh, if you're interested in hearing music like any of the music you've heard in this show or lots of other styles, check out his website, Music by Kays, K-A-Y-S, Dot com. Uh, go to his website, send him a message, say literally anything, and just say you, he- you heard about him on the Cinematography Podcast. He's an amazing composer, but you know what else he does? He color grades. He does CGI. He directs. Uh, Kay's is, we're all, you know what? We shouldn't be afraid of AI. We should be terrified of Kay's Alectraxi. I think we are already. <laughs> I, I know I am. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Ben, I think that's just about going to do it. Where can people find you? Where are you out there? You can find me at benrock.com. Uh, I'm still on Twitter for the time being at Neptune Salad. Uh, feel free to hit me up on Twitter on uh, pretty much all the social media things except for TikTok. You can definitely find me on uh, LinkedIn and stuff. But go to benrock.com. You can find all the links. I'm also on Mastodon. Hit me up on Mastodon. I'm really liking it. And it's sort of like Twitter if Twitter wasn't full of toxic weirdos. Oh, wow. Where can people find you? They can find me at Hot Rod Cameras, a sponsor of the show, hotrodcameras.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn. There's been uh, a little bit of activity regarding the podcast through LinkedIn lately. So, yeah, you know, reach me to either of those places. Excellent. Excellent. So, Ben, that's going to do it for us. Do you want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.